You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, translated by Simon Blaxland DeLang, 14 lectures. This is Lecture 3, given in Berlin on the 14th of November, 1912, entitled The Tasks of Spiritual Research for Both Present and Future. Spiritual science, as it is meant here in these lectures, does not wish to be something that springs from the arbitrary whim of this or that person and is accordingly based on the subjective idea of an individual or several people, but rather a spiritual conception of the world that involves itself with a certain necessity in the needs and demands of our time, insofar as this time is a recognizable product of the evolutionary history of mankind. Only if a world conception is in a sense demanded by its time can it lay claim with a certain justification to those confident words that were spoken in the first lecture of this winter series. Only on such terms can it be said on its behalf. However much hostility may be directed against it from one direction or other, if it contains something of the nature of truth, it can rely on the fact The truth, however hard people try to bury it, will always find cracks and crevices through which it becomes more widespread in the cultural life of mankind. We shall now try not with vague generalizations, but with concrete facts, to indicate how in the course of the last few centuries, and especially in recent times right up to the present, the seeking human soul has been steadily developing toward what the spiritual science that is being advocated here wants to be for the questing human soul. Anyone who feels inwardly compelled today to seek explanations of life's riddles in order to imbue his life with strength and certainty surely cannot fail to pose questions concerning what natural science, which far from being unappreciated by spiritual science, is fully recognized by it, has come to promulgate. Countless people today do, after all, believe that it will depend on a further development of scientific questions, on scientific research, whether it will, by bringing together these scientific facts and laws, also become possible to arrive at a worldview which gives man insight into what lies behind the phenomena that he can perceive with his senses that he can comprehend with his intellect and with which he feels connected in his existence. Phenomena that he endeavors to recognize in order that he can acquire a real understanding of the destiny of his soul and of its work in the world as a whole. In the light of such a longing and such a hope, it should be said that in the course of human evolution, the relation of the soul to what outward science is able to represent has completely changed as exemplified in the fact that the relationship that we can have to science with respect to questions of the soul is able to show us that our time should be characterized not simply as a time of transition, to use a trivial and frequently employed term, but one that as regards spiritual research is eminently a new beginning. We need only to recall the example of a great personality who, like many others of his kind, has continued to bring spiritual culture forward, namely Kepler, who is the actual great fashioner of the Copernican world conception, whence many questions of our modern conception of the world are nevertheless raised. Even though not everyone has a devotion to spiritual science, Surely there is no one who would not be able to say that through such achievements as those of Kepler's, mankind has succeeded in experiencing the movements of the heavenly bodies with the pure objectivity of science and its laws. 
and how, someone might say, can, additionally, the belief exist that these movements of the heavenly bodies are in some way ruled by spiritual beings, to whom spiritual science seeks to refer, by spiritual beings who stand behind the material world and its laws, since everything can, after all, be explained in a mechanical way. What is the need for spiritual forces of whatever kind standing behind these physical laws? Such a claim appears highly persuasive, and one can indicate that it was precisely the release from long-established prejudices of the old spiritual world conceptions that people such as Kepler achieved through the explanations that they gave of the movements of the heavenly bodies and space from purely physical laws. But if we study Kepler himself objectively, in his particular soul qualities, and without historical prejudice, we find remarkably that everything that guided Kepler's gaze to the celestial spaces and gave him his real inner impulses to discover his great mighty laws emanated from the awareness of being embedded with his soul in spiritual archetypes of existence, in the influence of spiritual beings who fill the heavenly spaces and exert their influence through time. It was clear to him that what he ascribed to the planetary movements as laws, in quote, could be instilled within him only through the laws being the thoughts of divine spiritual beings. If we investigate what these impulses that Kepler had were based on, we would have to say that they had their origin in that the whole course of human evolution has always maintained the connection of the human soul with the soul's spiritual domain. And in Kepler's time the existence of such a domain was still naturally accepted as part of traditional general belief as a means of inspiring and giving wings to the soul and engendering wakeful thoughts within it. But who could deny that this quality that stood so clearly in the background of Kepler's creative work has, in the course of recent centuries, gradually faded from view through what has arisen from it, so that today the human soul can very easily believe that Kepler's laws and everything that has come into existence in this way could be used as proof against the acceptance of a divine spiritual world. If we survey the period from Kepler through the centuries to our own time, we see how that which is still born from the consciousness of man's connection with the divine spiritual realm increasingly itself obliterates this consciousness, and how a time is approaching, empowered and enhanced by the achievements of natural science, by the emergence of significant knowledge from the scientific sphere, when the human soul will, because of the abundance of this scientific material, and of what has been discerned on a material level, gradually become incapable of ascending to the spiritual domain. One could say, the way that our intellectual development has unfolded in recent centuries can be characterized such that the increase in what it has brought forth is great and worthy of admiration, but that the possibility of the human soul being able to gain an insight into a spiritual world on the basis of these achievements has, precisely through the abundance and the nature of these achievements, been well-nigh destroyed. We can come to see this if, for instance, we consider the way that Goethe, with his manner of researching into the processes of nature, was positioned in the whole ideological framework of his time. It is interesting how, for example, Hermann Grimm, this brilliant and at the same time profound student of Goethe's work, feels himself to be obliged to characterize Goethe's place in the scientific developments of his time. Hermann Grimm asks, How did people in the centuries before the time of Goethe think about man's relationship to nature? Anyone who knows these centuries will admit that Hermann Grimm is right. They differed from the later view that man stood on the earth 
and people believe themselves authorized, in connection with the nature of animals, plants, and so on, to view man as something like a conclusion of the whole of the rest of earthly and indeed world creation, that people believe themselves to be entitled to say, the meaning residing in the whole of evolution is that one can, if one looks upon stone, plant, and animal, recognize how an inner being has gradually evolved, already having man in view, in order to put everything else at the disposal of man and his own purpose. How far there was still an intention to subscribe to the mosaic story of creation is not the point. But this conviction was indeed present, to see in all kingdoms of the world something like an impulse that already includes man and makes everything else merely the preparation whereby man, who has been spiritually there from the beginning, is made the pinnacle of the whole of creation. What was it that gradually developed from this? Firstly, as Hermann Grimm also says, astronomy began. The earth became an insignificant cosmic body in the universe, and man's position on the earth was such that without any previous antecedents in the other kingdoms, he had arisen as a necessity of nature, so that he was not justified in associating his significance with the whole origin of the created world. Geology assumes that vast periods of time have elapsed before man appeared on the earth, which, in a scientific sense, would by no means show any evidence that the purpose of all this was to prepare for a future appearance of humanity. In a certain sense, one may call Goethe a radical natural scientist. I have frequently mentioned here that through his own scientific discoveries, his endeavor was to separate out from opinions about the outward structure of man's being what could distinguish him from the other organisms of the earth. And one may call Goethe an evolutionist before Darwin and the other proponents of the theory of evolution in our time. But Hermann Grimm correctly points out how Goethe did not allow himself to accept that behind where Darwinism sees nothing more than material processes, he could perceive a spiritual world that spiritually evolves in all material processes, so that man comes to find his place there. We have a remarkable saying of Goethe's, that makes us so clearly aware that although he was so thoroughly scientific in orientation, he was at pains to place man at the summit and crown of spiritual existence. He says, What, in the end, are all the millions of stars in the world? For if a human eye, E-Y-E, is not eventually able to perceive them and then observe them and receive them into his being. And not without justice, If we peruse all these scientific facts and laws, there is much that can substantiate the right to pose the question, where in this outer world can we find something other than man that could become for us the grounds for the supposition that the spirit holds sway in all living and lifeless things? Where, if we consider man himself scientifically, once it has been ascertained that the life of the soul is bound up with the processes of the brain, do we find an indication regarding thinking of soul existence outside the confines of birth and death? One needs today only to turn to one of the more significant and renowned philosophers, for example the world-famous Wundt, and one will everywhere find when such philosophers base their work on natural scientific research, that certain conclusions, certain results are drawn from scientific facts, and that the philosophers always, so far as I can see, arrive at a conception of the spiritual, but that in the moment when it would be a matter of taking hold of the spiritual domain, they are compelled to grind to a halt. Why is this? For the simple reason that the whole manner of thinking that has developed with the support of scientific research 
and accords precisely with scientific facts, yields no possibility of finding the path within these habits of thinking, within this whole manner of research, from matter and its laws to real spiritual happenings and their essential nature. Because at every point the thread of thought breaks off. Why did it not break off with Goethe? Because Goethe was still imbued with impulses that had come as primal elements in the evolution of mankind. Because there still lived in him something of what has remained from the historical past, from ancient spiritual perceptions, which we shall come to later. And because his soul was in a certain sense not as yet devoid of what had come toward the soul in a certain spiritual path in the course of the centuries, when its outward perspective was colored by the things of the material world. But our time evolved rapidly, and hence through its rapid development, in those who structured their habits of thought, in accordance with natural scientific research, there is hardly anything left of what was still present in Goethe. We have therefore experienced that Darwin has displayed the inner relationships of living beings more fully and searchingly than Goethe, but nevertheless, in the whole significance and manner of his research, he was unable to go beyond a certain point. Whereas in the whole nature and significance of his research, Goethe saw the spirit behind outward phenomena. The Darwinians, not Darwin himself, were obliged to conceive of that which did not prevent Goethe from coming to the spirit as an obstacle to approaching the spiritual domain in some way. Thus we can understand that those who see their real hopes for an outlook on the world as lying in modern science are inevitably largely disappointed. To be sure, something of what existed amongst mankind is not so easily lost. We can experience in the most recent times that even serious researchers who wish only for science are by no means of the opinion that this science must present only outward facts, but could very well serve as a means of substantiating the ongoing course of a world wisdom that lives in material things. It is interesting that an historian from the school of Ranka, Lord Acton, was able to say as a history teacher to his listeners in the course of an important university address in Cambridge in 1895, I hope that the whole way that historical facts are described will reveal the working of a divine world wisdom. Yes, Lord Acton even spoke in those days of the influence of the Risen One, in quotes, in history. Thus we see that from the times when the existence of a spiritual world was accepted as a matter of course, there extends into our time a continuing thread of research, a living echo of the whole scientific thinking of such a set of convictions. That in this sense of being carried by what emanates from former times, the soul continues to feel itself to be imbued by the world of spirit. But it is equally true that anyone who forms a strong link today with the thought forms of natural science, and for example takes up the idea that the various soul functions have their corresponding expressions in processes of the brain or other parts of the nervous system, that such a person may, by working through a series of facts, easily say to himself, yes, for what man is enabled to think, feel, and experience in the material world, there are always factors that the researcher can identify. But as for what might lie before and after it for the soul, natural science tells me nothing. How widespread is the error that because natural science is unable to reach beyond its observation of facts and their laws to the spiritual domain, it must therefore also reject all notions of this domain. And yet it is again characteristic of the whole situation of the modern world conception that those who base their ideas on the standpoint that we can arrive at a conception of the world only by bringing together scientific facts and laws, are forever warning 
about jumping to conclusions, about forming hypotheses on the basis of a few facts, in order to draw conclusions as to how the life of the soul is linked to this or that, how the world situation is, and so on. Such a warning emerged only recently at a significant place. At this year's gathering of naturalists, the leading naturalist, Wettstein, gave a talk about biology, about the science of life in the way that it can be utilized for the prevailing worldview. And from the relevant facts, he warned about drawing general conclusions as regards this view of the world. But many people, nevertheless, believe that one should therefore wait for answers to the riddles relating to the life of the soul until science has finished researching the facts. This kind of idea, and to be specific, it would have to be voiced by someone wanting to gain insight into the mysteries of the soul and the spirit in order to come to conclusions about them, who was wholly immersed in the world of scientific facts, reminds one of a beautiful saying of Goethe, quote, In order to understand that the sky is everywhere blue, one does not need to travel round the world. Close quote. I should like to show in concrete terms how the path of the human soul to its mysteries in the spiritual domain is in a certain sense independent from everything that the various laws of natural science, the various laws of learned people, are able to give to the human soul. In order to substantiate this, I should like to refer to the following fact. In the 19th century there was a notable philosopher in Munich called Moritz Carrière. He was one of those who tried to understand the world and its phenomena out of a richness not only of thoughts but of real scientific erudition. Through his great work about cultural development, Carrière was, has indeed shown how he brought together one fact after another of what was taught in olden times in order to understand the passage of the spirit through world evolution. From all such processes, Carrière formed a worldview that I am all the more glad to mention because it wholly pre- preceded the development of a true spiritual science, a worldview that out of itself came to an insight of the soul's connection with a spiritual world that is extended through space and time in such a way that there is a connection between that which resides physically in the human body and the substances and forces that are spread out in space and exert their influence in time. One day Moritz Carrière was shown the manuscript of a simple man, someone who was not in the least learned, who had none of the richness of the erudition through which Moritz Carrière had come to a perception of the connection that has just been described of the soul with the world of spirit. This simple man was called Zoyner, and he was born in 1813. As the result of a life which there is no time to describe here, it came about that Zoyner had to spend many, many months alone, He let himself be carried away by the revolutionary movement, and this led to his imprisonment. But despite his lack of learning, he was a highly sensitive soul. In the manuscript that he showed Moritz Carrière in the 1870s, he relates how in his solitary cell he pondered and pondered, filled only, as befitted the spirit of his time and of those who had surrounded him, with materialistic opinions but how his soul had become desolate in solitude, how it had suffered from the hunger of having something in which it was unable to believe. Then he goes on to explain how, from his cell, he heard some remarkable singing that rang forth outside, which reminded him of experiences of his early childhood and brought him into connection with other experiences, how this again released a spark of joy in his soul, and how this impulse that was thereby given to his soul, an impulse of inner freshness and activity, released thoughts in this simple, unsophisticated soul that Soiner now wrote down. And this was the manuscript that he later sent to Moritz Carrière. When one reads it, Moritz Carrière la- later has it printed, one must say that Carrière was right. 
Zoiner, by abandoning himself to the soul that in solitude poured forth imperiously from his breast, found something that in the same way represents the soul's connection with the world spirit, as Carrier was able to portray it after he had a life of erudition and science behind him. One does not need to travel round the earth to understand that the sky is blue everywhere. The path to the spiritual domain has quite specifically to be found in a way other than by merely summarizing scientific laws or by drawing conclusions from scientific research. But the debate with natural science has to be a very different one. No worldview can exist today, and no worldview may exist, because the needs of the human soul would brush it aside, that would be in contradiction with natural science. Hence it had to be so sharply emphasized in the first two lectures what can be said on the part of natural science against spiritual research, and how spiritual science has to relate to this. And it cannot be emphasized often enough that one should feel mistaken with respect to any spiritual scientific knowledge if one now uses it to oppose a justified result of natural science. But if one again considers this natural science, and if one has a sense and a heart for the necessary authority that must flow from it, one will all the more have to indicate what can confuse the soul, what must necessarily confuse it because of the abundance of what is there if he wants to tread the path to the spirit. This too I should like to substantiate by means of examples. I shall draw attention to two researchers who both stand on the ground of the history of evolution, on the ground of natural science. Both researchers conceived of the emergence of separate living organisms from one another, as the Darwinians also did, but they excluded man. They were clear that one does not have to apply the laws applicable to the animal world to man but that just as one must derive his bodily nature from the physical realm, so should one derive his soul-spiritual nature from a soul-spiritual context. They were both completely clear about this. They were just as good at researching nature as they were in their understanding of spiritual matters, but their habits of thinking were dominated by those of natural science. They thought as one thinks as a true natural scientist. How did the one, Mivart, and how did the other, Wallace, a contemporary of Darwin, think about the actual processes of evolution? Wallace said to himself that man could not so simply be included in the animal kingdom, already for the reason that there is, in the outward structure of the brain, a considerable difference between man and the most highly evolved apes even if the comparison is with a primitive person. And because the brain of an ape is, by contrast to the brain of a primitive, far too imperfect for man to have evolved from the ape purely in the direct course of evolution. The other researcher, Mivart, found that the level of civilization of a primitive person does not differ outwardly from the developmental level of a highly evolved ape. But if one considers the intellectual activities of the primitive, and in contrast those of the highly evolved ape, one would have to presuppose that although the brains of both have so much similarity to one another, man does not belong to the animal kingdom. If one again considers the brains, one sees very clearly that man's brain has not evolved from the brain of an ape through adaptation to outward tasks, but through civilization it develops all possibilities in such a way that it only appears that everything has been brought about in order that it could become a tool of civilization. Thus, because the brain of an ape and the human brain so strongly differ from one another, one of the naturalists, Wallace, believes that he must accept that there is no relationship between man and the animal kingdom. And for Wallace it was precisely the similarity of the intellectual qualities that was proof 
for what he was saying. For Mivart, his contemporary, the exact opposite was the case. He was of the view that if one compares the intellectual qualities of the primitive with a highly evolved ape, there is so great a difference that, on account of this difference, it would be impossible to accept a fundamental relationship between the primitive and the ape. We, therefore, see two naturalists, both accustomed to thinking in accordance with natural science, who, for opposite reasons, pronounce their opinion, the one because the qualities of the primitive and the highly evolved ape are so similar, the other because they are so different. If then two researchers, who are both inclined to derive man from a spiritual origin, can become so confused by the abundance of facts available as regards their grounds for proof, how is anyone who is even more biased in his prejudices in favor of purely materialistic thinking to be not rendered still more incapable of arriving from the sheer abundance of available facts and laws at a spiritual awareness? Natural science merely leads us from fact to fact. When we have spiritual science, we can, from this spiritual science, actually understand natural science and place it in its true light. However, the laws of spiritual science can never be derived from natural science. Thus it will inevitably happen increasingly that the human soul will be drained of spiritual nourishment if it depends on scientifically valuing only what comes from natural science. Natural science will itself achieve its greatness and significance by knowing its own limits. However, anyone who even to a small extent casts an eye upon human soul life will soon find that the soul needs answers to the question of the spirit for its strength and confidence and for what it has to do in life. Whereas in former times, we have substantiated this when we spoke of Kepler and Goethe and we could find other examples. Such answers were available to the human soul in the way people experience the world. This is not the case today. And a new task arises today that we have been able and will continue to characterize the task of spiritual science. Precisely that which has disappeared through the greatness of natural science must again be found independently through spiritual science. In that the paths are shown on which the human soul can attain its spiritual home. Anyone who rightly understands the age in which we are living will, once the background to the present situation has been thus described, grasp the extent of the need and longing that manifests itself increasingly to comprehend the world also out of the spirit and to establish an independent spiritual science alongside natural science. When we enter into specific issues, such as the law of repeated earthly lives that is probably rejected by many spiritual believers today, we see it gradually coming to find its place in modern culture for example, in Lessing's treatise on titled The Education of the Human Race. Again and again we see, even though there is little awareness of this today, how in the nineteenth century inwardly consistent researchers of the soul have been led toward the law of repeated earthly lives, which is alone appropriate as a means of understanding the human soul. The more that natural science celebrates its great triumphs on the ground of matter, the more does the longing blossom for the spirit to pursue its own paths. I should like to show by means of a further specific example how the course of modern cultural life is such that as though out of itself it leads to what spiritual science wants to be in our time. I want to draw your attention to a thinker and researcher concerning whom I shall be speaking further in the course of these winter lectures, and it was interesting with respect to a yearning for spiritual science, namely Hermann Grimm, the art historian, a person with extensive and comprehensive knowledge 
He manifests himself to us as one of those in modern times who strongly feel the urge to go beyond a purely natural scientific view of, in particular, human life, but who are held back by the impulses and forces of the age from taking the final step of embracing spiritual science. Whoever carefully peruses Hermann Grimm's writings will see that he seeks a world principle, though not a dead world principle, but a creative law which the practical historian can adhere to and which must be something different from so-called historical ideas. Ideas are just as little able to create something as, with reference to the image from the last lecture, a painter who has been painted can paint a picture. Ideas are something dead. Only something living can achieve anything. Hermann Grimm looked for the living in history, for what is able to work creatively from one age to another, for what in the primal age of humanity created the form of the human soul from impersonal foundations and then magically brought forth its individual achievements from age to age, from one popular culture to another. And what did he think that he had as such found? Creative imagination. There was also a German philosopher, Froschammer, who viewed imagination in this way, not only in historical processes, but also as a creative force in nature. Hermann Grimm did not, as he wanted to, manage to show how imagination is actually a kind of divine force that lives in the will and brings forth deeds in human history. Just as the individual human being calls forth from himself the deeds that his soul accomplishes. What he did was to enunciate in the light of this view that behind historical development there lies the creative imagination, that everything has come about from the creative imagination. But what is the imagination to him? Do we not see in the urge of a researcher to be able to understand the facts, a drawing toward something spiritual, which, however, is no spirit? For the creative imagination remains a mere abstraction, which is indeed more living than historical ideas, but for someone who thinks realistically is nevertheless only an abstraction. One might say that a researcher, such as Hermann Grimm, is pushing hard at the gate of spiritual science. He cannot remain with outer material facts and external happenings. He sees behind all outer events that which imagination creates, and he objectivizes it in what happens in the world. But no one can recognize anything real, a truly creative force in the imagination. It remains an abstraction, and only if one penetrates to what is no longer an abstraction, to what is spiritual, which is as real as anything sense-perceptible, only if one penetrates to the spiritual facts, which are not ideas that have been written about but are intrinsically real, can one understand how that which is around us is really happening in the world. Thus we see in such a deep thinker how the longing of our time draws him to the spiritual domain, and how the grounds of hindrance that have arisen through the age are so mighty that human beings are unable to come through the gateway to the world of spirit. Do we not see how this spiritual science has tasks for present and future that correspond to the longing, the urgency, the demands of the age? Let us look at the forces hindering modern souls more precisely. In the longing for the spiritual domain, we can recognize so clearly how human beings can, if they have a clear insight into the circumstances of the age, do none other than wish for the spirit and its laws. But how they are as yet unable to reach the world of spirit and are now, as it were, awaiting it. Wherever one looks, one observes the urge toward that which one does not yet know. But one can see very clearly in the nature of the urge that a time will come that is no longer so far away 
when people will understand that spiritual science is the solution to the longing, to the urge that they have. Not so long ago it was possible to see in the bookshops on every station a book that was indeed not written by a man who would easily give way to effusiveness of any kind. This book was not the work of an introspective loner, of someone who is unaware of the intellectual and spiritual needs of the age. If spiritual science is wanting to demonstrate its legitimacy, it should not rely on those enthusiasts who, in their sectarian way, want to understand what can help humanity further, but it should indeed make reference to what is expressed in the book in question, titled A Critical View of the Age by Walter Rathenau which was written by someone who is directly involved in industrial and commercial life and knows how our times really function. Not that I would want to agree with everything in the book. On every page there is something I can take issue with. But what does Walter Rathenau say? He presents exactly what I have sought to establish at a somewhat deeper level out of the spirit of what has unfolded in the last century. According to Rathenau, Through the advances of natural science, a general mechanization of life has come about. Whereas man formerly tried to interpret what presented itself to his senses out of the spirit, he now explains it from a mechanistic standpoint. But the relationship of one person to another has also been mechanized. Mechanization is what has come about through the great advances and the significant achievements of the age. And one can sense, and Walter Rathenau indeed feels this, how the soul becomes barren amidst this intellectual and social mechanicalness, how it gradually becomes empty in the context of such aims, how one can indeed take nourishment from it, but because of this mechanistic quality cannot assuage its hunger. What many of the best modern authorities have said is also expressed here. If one stands up for what the soul craves spiritually, one will be able to see that even if the soul is content with something of an illusory nature, the hunger will become all the more manifest. So we see how a person who is thoroughly in tune with the age writes, quote, The age seeks not its meaning and its God, it seeks its soul, which has grown dark in the mingling of blood, in the whirl of mechanistic thinking and desires. It seeks its soul, and will find it, of course against the will of mechanization. It has been of little account to this epoch to develop the soul nature in man. It has set out to make the world profitable and hence rational, to shift back the threshold of wonder and to conceal what lies beyond. Nevertheless, we are, as ever before, surrounded by mystery. It manifests itself beneath every smooth surface of thought, and from every daily experience it needs but a single step to arrive at the center of the world. Mechanization has been unable to rob the individual of the three emanations of the soul. Love for created things, for nature, and for the Godhead. For the life of the collective whole they have been dispersed to the point of insignificance. Human love has sunk down to cold pity and to a duty of care and nevertheless signifies the moral summit of the whole epoch. Love of nature became a sentimental pleasure for Sundays. Love of God, overshadowed by the ruling operation of mythological dogmatic rituals, was enlisted in the service of this or that interest and therefore became suspect not merely to ignoble natures. There is probably no single way in which people can render themselves unable to find their souls, if only by having delight in flying. But humanity will not fail to keep to the beaten track. No prophets or founders of religions will come, for no individual voice will be heard by this deaf age. Otherwise it could still listen to Christ and Paul. No esoteric communities will take over the leadership, for an occult teacher will be misunderstood by the first pupil, never mind the second. 
No unified art will bring its soul to the world, for art is a mirror and a plaything of the soul, not its originator. What is greatest and most significant about all this is something very simple. Nothing will happen unless under the pressure and urgency of mechanization, of lack of freedom, of fruitless battle, humanity will sweep aside the hindrances that impede the growth of its soul. This will happen not through thinking and brooding, but through free understanding and experiencing. What many people speak about today and some understand is something that in future many and in the end all will understand that no power on earth can stand up against the soul. Close quote. Steiner again. Insofar as such words express longings, and insofar as our time demands the spirit, one can be wholly in agreement with them. It should only be added, there is a clear sense here that the writer knows what the age needs, but there is a total lack of awareness of what can satisfy this urge and these needs. Also in evidence is a clear judgment that the justified individualism of our time is no longer suitable for receiving an individual religious founder or prophet, or for establishing occult schools on some kind of sectarian basis which seeks to call itself, in quotes, esoteric. True spiritual science will want neither the one nor the other. True spiritual science knows how the truly esoteric has legitimacy if it does not wish to become exoteric but remains within itself. For it is not a question of what seeks to establish itself as something esoteric, but, rather, of what wants to find its place in our time such that it can be accepted by a sound manner of thinking. To this extent, the authority of a prophet of whatever kind will not be able to satisfy the age in which we are living, but only a truth that is wholly independent of a human individual and his subjective individuality, and to which the human soul can dedicate itself if it so wills. To the extent that this is so, what is here intended with spiritual science tallies precisely with the words of this practical person, Walter Rathenau. But why is it so difficult for people in our time to approach spiritual science? Why is there something like an unscalable wall between the urgency of the age and true spiritual science? This is another way of showing where the actual hindrances lie. What, for example, would someone say about a natural science that wants to be a science, in quotes, and wants to engage with the needs of the time, if the person, wishing, in this sense, to be a natural scientist, were always only to answer every question regarding the connection of the physical human body with scientific facts by saying, whatever aspect of the organization of man's physical body you may want to consider, it corresponds to what you also find outside in nature. Can anyone conceive of a serious natural science that only always answers any question that one may ask? This is nature. Nature is behind the movements of the stars. Nature is behind chemical reactions. Nature, nature, nature. A mere word. Can one possibly imagine that a person who behaved in this way would be regarded as someone who really knew anything about nature? Again, one can say, the impulses of the human soul to enter the spiritual world have recently become so weak that the urge that manifests itself so actively in our time comes to expression in what in spiritual science would bear a considerable similarity to the situation in natural science if people were always only to cry, Nature, nature, nature. Some important voices are raised who energetically declare that the natural scientific research of our time must direct man to affairs of the soul. But in demanding this direction of attention toward the soul, they do not go beyond emphasizing, quote, Man has a soul. There is a soul, close quote and so on. 
quote, soul, 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 spirit, 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 close quote, they say. Just as the somewhat unsatisfactory natural scientist would say, nature, nature, nature. So we see, and the facts that are being stated here are by no means insignificant, how a significant individual of our time gives a lecture at a festive celebration at Harvard University in America about how a general world conception that leads to the spiritual domain must be born out of natural science. Dr. Eliot, a man who stands firmly on the ground of natural science and who is thoroughly knowledgeable about present-day scientific research, I should like to cite a passage from a lecture that has been given at a place of such eminence. Dr. Eliot said, quote, Men have always attributed to man a spirit distinct from his body, though imminent in it. No one of us is willing to identify himself with his body, but on the contrary, everyone now believes, and all men have believed, that there is in man an animating, ruling, characteristic essence, or spirit, which is himself. This is something just as real as the body, and more characteristic. This spirit or soul is the most effective part of every human being, and is recognized as such and always has been. Close quote. Steiner again. Dr. Eliot says nothing further, other than referring to the soul, in quotes, in an analogous way to how someone would always only refer to nature, nature, nature. We have in our time not yet reached the point where the thought habits with respect to the spirit would sink into the same mold as with nature. In natural science we distinguish oxygen and hydrogen and water and we do not say oxygen and hydrogen belong to nature. This is how we enter into the specific details of nature. Spiritual science similarly has to come to what lives in the soul by way of forces and activities, not only to relate to a, quote, general spirituality, close quote, but to a spiritual world, to a specific realm of the spirit, that is distinguished in detail like the individual facts of natural science. Only when spiritual science comes to contemplate the various facts of the human soul, in the way that natural science studies the various facts of the natural world, will it be able to give the human soul what it demands. The purpose of the next lecture will be to give an indication of this process. But the main thing is to discuss how, in our time, there is the urge toward something regarding whose nature and significance people continue to lack clarity, and how the task that awaits spiritual science in our time is to bring a knowledge of the world of spirit, just as natural science brings a knowledge of the facts of nature. And just as natural science considers its task to be that of tracing a substance that is also to be found in the human body, as it has evolved out in the world, in order to understand the whole context, so will spiritual science consider its task to be that of relating a particular function of the human soul to the spiritual forces and spiritual creative principles out in the universe. From this it will also recognize how that which lives in the human soul relates to the whole universe, to space and time. Only through this can it arrive at answers to the riddles of immortality and man's destiny between death and a new birth. Abstract references to spirit, in quotes, and soul, in quotes, cannot in general lead to something fruitful. They will always only lead to doubt with respect to the true answers for example, regarding the question of immortality. Only when one sees that there is a connection with something altogether different that is not subject to the transitory course of time will these questions find an answer from spiritual science. If one bears this in mind, one may indeed say, the tasks of spiritual science for the present and future are similar in nature to the tasks placed before natural science 
at the dawn of the scientific developments of the modern age. Just as at the time of Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, and so on, the old traditions were superseded and the human mind itself was directed toward natural scientific facts, with the result that a pursuit of this path until our own time has led to a certain abundance of scientific achievements. So must it be the most serious task of our time to establish a spiritual science with a degree of thoroughness and to indicate the paths that the soul has to follow in order to gain access to specific spiritual beings and spiritual facts. Natural science has not had an easy time of it. It has also had to struggle against obstacles, as we are again experiencing in the case of spiritual science. I have often referred to these obstacles. Thus, for example, Galileo sought to explain to people in his time how throughout the Middle Ages it was believed that the nerves of a human being proceed from the heart. And he wanted to show how the nerves have their source in the brain. Then a friend said to him, This contradicts everything that Aristotle has taught. In spite of the fact that this is not what Aristotle meant, it was believed that the nerves of a human being originate from the heart. Throughout the Middle Ages, people did not look at nature itself, but simply maintained old traditions and prejudices. So when Galileo demonstrated to a friend, by means of a corpse, that he should convince himself that nerves issue from the brain, the friend replied, If I look at it for myself, it seems as though the nerves derive from the brain. But this contradicts Aristotle. And when I come in conflict with Aristotle, I believe Aristotle and not nature. This demonstrates how strong people's prejudices can be. And when later, wholly in accordance with Galileo, Francesco Redi delivered a crushing blow to the prejudice that was still dominant at his time, that living beings could develop from something non-living, that lower animals, worms and the like, arise from river sludge, when he expressed the principle, quote, something living can only arise from the living, close quote, and that it is simply a matter of inaccurate observation if one believes that worms could emerge from river sludge where there is no germinal seed present, he escaped Giordano Bruno's fate only by the skin of his teeth. Now, when today the spiritual scientific researcher says, if you believe that in a developing child everything that it manifests in a soul sense is conditioned solely through inheritance from its parents and ancestors, your observation is inexact. It derives, far rather, from a spiritual seed that passed through a previous earthly life, was on the earth, and then underwent a life in the spiritual world. When, in this way, spiritual science refers to a spiritual seed, as Francesco Redi pointed toward a material seed, you are again encountering the prejudices of the age. If today people are no longer burned at the stake, there are now other means whereby such assertions can be made harmless, or at least ridiculous. The way in which the age treats its people does of course change from one epoch to another, but the nature of prejudices remains the same. Similarly, the age in which we are now living is the time for researching spiritual needs, just as the age of the dawn of natural scientific development was the time for exploring natural scientific needs. And if natural science has, through its fruits, brought to mankind a raising of the level of outward culture, the fruits of spiritual culture will be of a completely different nature. They will, above all, be fruits for the life of the soul. How does many a person today suffer because of the prejudices of natural science? Thus a human individual may, if he believes in the conclusions of natural science and denies the spirit, quite lightly say to himself, I possess individuality of a certain kind. I look at my blood relationships and must recognize that I am the result of the way that I have inherited them. Then a sense of depression, a lack of energy, 
and an inability to battle against destiny afflicts many a soul. For if it is so that a person is merely the result of inheritance, it would then be impossible to keep the baneful influences of inheritance in check, just as it is impossible to prevent from striking someone. But if spiritual science does not remain a mere theory, but becomes a power within the soul, so that a soul essence lives within us for which we have been given through the line of inheritance is merely an outward garment and which must seek ever deeper and deeper forces within itself, there grows the courage, the hope, the energy wherewith to master and improve that which manifests itself in outward bodily existence as weakness through spiritual forces. Then there is no longer a moment in human life when, with respect to the spiritual forces within man, one can lack the confidence to overcome outward impediments. So it is on many levels. Thus merely to believe in the matter in which the life of the soul is said to be entwined is enough to suppress our happiness, our energy, whereas spiritual science, if it becomes a living inner power of the soul, can give us confidence to withstand the mechanization of life. This is another task of spiritual science, that it will create the possibilities in all areas for relating to life in a sure and healthy way. Dr. Eliot also in his way promises a science that is sound and healthy, as he is also someone who knows the urge of the soul toward the spirit, while having the attitude of the student of nature, who would always speak of nature, 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 he says, such a new science will not speak of death and sorrow, as does the old science, but of life and joy. I gladly share his view that the soul eagerly awaits a world conception that is oriented toward life and joy, that wants to turn away from and not be overwhelmed by death and sorrow, with which old world conceptions that have specifically confronted man with the riddle of death, are mainly preoccupied. I gladly believe that people want to reject death and sorrow, but death and sorrow will come regardless. Human beings are not at liberty to resist to this extent and to say that they want to get rid of death and sorrow and want to have life and joy, but death and sorrow will come anyway, and one must be prepared to deal with them. And yet one can only do so if one knows the living spirit that even takes life beyond where outer nature has placed death and sorrow, and which also knows the creative principle in grief, suffering, and sorrow. Moreover, we shall see that spiritual science, as it is meant here, is able to view that force of evil which hinders evolution and is at variance with life as something that nevertheless advances world development and serves life. One might say, what the truth of spiritual science, where it arises not from the arbitrary whim of an individual, but from what a person can recognize today if he rightly comprehends the world that surrounds him through paths of the soul leading to a spiritual knowledge, can signify in the context of world evolution, can become apparent by comparing how the spiritual scientific researcher relates to the natural scientific researcher at the dawn of the modern age. Let us turn our attention to Giordano Bruno, in whom the world conception of Copernicus comes most succinctly to expression. How does he stand within his time? He takes up the laws of Copernicus, directs his attention toward the widths of space. Previously there was a world conception that was wholly reliant upon outward sense perception. When one hears today that everything is uncertain, that has not been investigated by customary science, one could object that this was how science itself was viewed at the time of Copernicus and Giordano Bruno. So long as people relied on what their eyes conveyed to them as regards the starry heavens, they did not have the right view of the outer world configuration. It was only when they went beyond outer sense experience and began to focus on thoughts that through inner energy they found what is today recognized as true. 
Only when Copernicus and Giordano Bruno arrived at the point of overcoming the deception of sensory appearance were they able to indicate how mistaken people had hitherto been to believe that the earth is a fixed point in space around which orbit the moon, the sun, and the planets, then the sphere of the fixed stars, and behind it the so-called eighth sphere, which is the boundary of everything. If you direct your eyes into the celestial spaces, there is no eighth sphere, which you put there yourself, but there is the blue firmament, and the widths of space are filled with worlds like ours, and we gaze into a sea of infinity if we are able to overcome the boundary that we ourselves have set. The overcoming of limits of space was the greatness of the worldview of Copernicus and Giordano Bruno, in that it was recognized. Because man's gaze did not extend any further, people believed in an eighth sphere, whereas in truth the widths of space are unlimited. Mankind stands with respect to spiritual science on exactly the same ground, just as Giordano Bruno showed that the blue vault of heaven is there only because man's gaze is unable to reach beyond it. So does spiritual science show that human life between birth and death is limited only because the perspective of an ordinary person cannot go beyond this. Just as little as the firmament is a boundary, for the contemplation of the world of space, so are birth and death no less a limit for the contemplation of human existence, a limit that we establish because the perception of an ordinary person extends only so far. As through natural science the natural boundary of the world was swept away and cosmic space was opened up, so are the limits of birth and death swept away for man by spiritual science in that it teaches the eye, E-Y-E, of the spirit to direct its attention to the life of the soul in eternal duration, in the same way that natural science has in the dawn of modern times directed its gaze into eternity, or, to be more precise, into the infinitude of space. Exactly the same today as then, though in a different realm. Just as it is true that natural science, which turned toward outward human life and toward an outward knowledge of it, has yielded infinite advantages and achievements, so is it also true that the perceptive quality of the human soul that extends beyond birth and death and beyond the purely temporal will bring infinite value as regards what the soul needs for its life. For spiritual scientific research will, if it is rightly carried out, be transmitted to the human soul and will there become life, will engender strength and confidence, will place us in the whole social context and bring to the soul that for which those souls who are beginning to understand, even to a small degree, are so greatly longing. It is absolutely true, not only in theory but in life and in strength of will, that spiritual science will achieve what I have tried to summarize in some words with which I would like to conclude my presentation today, which was intended to show the nature of the spirit, significance and purpose of spiritual science, and what it is to mean for the human soul. We can express the significance and purpose of spiritual science somewhat as follows, quote, All that lives in widths of space speaks to the sense of man, transforms itself in course of time. The human soul, as knower, enters unconfined by spatial wits and undeterred by bonds of time into the realm of spirit land. The end of Lecture 3